Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 48 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. In this episode, we are going to recap the spring Microsoft Ignite 2021 conference. Joining me for the recap is our usual Microsoft expert, Warner Chavez. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the show. Hey, how are you, Chris? Really happy to be back here. Yes, happy Friday. This one kind of snuck up on me. I, I, It wasn't on my radar, and then it was a thing. Was it just me? Did it sneak up on you too? No, it was kind of like the same with me. I don't think actually Microsoft did a lot of promotion in terms of you know uh, months of lead up to it. I basically started to hear MVPs talking about it and people tweeting about like, oh, Ignite is next week. Maybe I've just been kind of busy from work at the same time. But yeah, and I was just like, oh, wait a minute. How come, what do you mean it's Ignite is next week? We're in uh, March. But yeah, so basically Microsoft taking advantage of the fact that they don't have to produce a full-blown in-person event to basically give us a smaller scale spring update through a virtual conference, right? And they just decided to just keep this Ignite branding, make it like a petite Ignite for, for spring. Gotcha. There uh, were quite a few exciting updates to talk about. Jumping right into them, let's start with Azure Resource Mover. Yeah, so this is something that seems kind of silly, especially with people think that, you know, sometimes people think, oh, in the cloud, you can do absolutely everything, right? If I have a machine in the Germany, I can just press a button and it just moves it magically to the US and I don't have to do anything. But actually, it's not it's not that transparent, right? There's a lot of dependencies when you have to move machines. You have to make sure that you're also um, switching out IPs, uh, network security groups. You got to move them into one virtual network to the other. There can be collisions, all that kind of stuff. So Microsoft basically has a tool now, a service called the Azure Resource Mover that is now generally available. And what it does is exactly this. So if you want to move a particular resource, then you can just select it, say, hey, I wanna move it from this place to the other, and it can detect the dependencies that there are in your resource. Like for example, a VM, I think is mostly targeted for obviously for IaaS workloads because the other pass services is not really that you're moving the resource, right? A pass service, you would just deploy the pass service in another region and use some sort of replication setup. But uh, in the case of VMs, then it will analyze your VM, the IP address, a network config, if it has some uh, dependency on uh, disks and stuff like that. And then it'll give you a list of issues if it finds issues. And if it can do the move, then it'll help you set up everything as well and initiate the move from the resource mover service as well. So you can keep track of the progress of the move and everything, right? Because some things to be moved, for example, if you wanted to move disk, then it might actually need data movement, right? If you want to migrate it completely from one region to the other. So pretty neat, something like I said, sometimes people think in the cloud, everything just happens automatically, but a resource like this is actually pretty handy. Before this, most people had some really complex and coupled up PowerShell scripts to be able to do this. So it's good to have a native solution now. Perhaps a dumb question, but I see some really great stuff out of the cloud providers. Does the machine stay running while it moves? Oh no, it's not that magical. So in gotcha. this case, it actually it actually is basically like a shutdown of the machine. You, you move it and then it comes back up. So this is a, a resource mover in, in the terms that you are like taking it from one region and moving it to the other, right? If you are looking to some, do something like where you're talking about, Microsoft also has another product that's called Site Recovery where you can do real-time replication of VMs, right? In that case, we're looking more like a failover scenario not just mm -hmm. like an offline migration. Right yeah, now. I remember us talking about that, the um, Azure Site Recovery. Okay, shifting uh, to the next one. I liked this one, we kind of covered it a bit, but uh, the private Azure Marketplace? Yeah, so this is basically for customers and companies as they keep adopting more of Azure and they grow in their governance and how they allow people to interact with the cloud in itself. So a big thing that comes up sometimes is that there's, you know, they want to give people some freedom 
into what they deploy in the cloud. And they also want to give people at the same time an experience that is controlled and, and governed, right? So for example, Microsoft has the Azure marketplace and all the cloud providers have a marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. Where they let people deploy different solutions and offers from third parties, right? But the problem here, of course, is that how do you do that and at the same time not allow people to simply deploy something that is not, let's say, certified by your company, right? From like security perspective, or maybe it's a vendor that is not approved and so on, right? So now Microsoft has this option of having a private marketplace where you can select the vendors and their offers that you allow your or your subscription to deploy, right? So you can give people some sense of self-service and, and autonomy for deploying vendors, but you have the ability to whitelist the vendors and the products that you will allow in your own private marketplace. Yeah, I, I like it. I also think it really will help with stickiness. If you think of you know large tier one enterprises, if they adopt that and and release the marketplace uh, into the IT and and perhaps shadow IT areas, I think it's a I think it's a smart move for for many reasons. I haven't looked in detail on it, but it would also make sense if you can create your own offerings. Mm -hmm. right in your own private marketplace so your yeah. own it it can totally change the way that you deploy as it right because then yeah. it could create their own offers quote unquote and if you're a really big corporation for example you literally would be buying it uh solutions from your own let's say headquarters it yeah. department right and yep. it's like you literally pay you are paying yep. back up yep. to your internal billings corporate head yeah. right so, yep. so it's interesting. It could be, it could be adapted to that, I guess. I, yep. I, like I said, I haven't played around with it, but it would be an interesting way to use it. For sure. And also it looks like there were a couple of updates to Azure Arc. We've talked uh, quite a bit about mm -hmm. Azure Arc yep. in the podcast, but the, the, the two minute pitch, right? Azure Arc is basically Microsoft's new hybrid platform where the idea is to run Azure services on-prem uh, enabled by Kubernetes. So Microsoft, uh, you have to provide the Kubernetes cluster on-prem and Microsoft provides all the bits that go on top of it. And then through the internet, Microsoft controls your Kubernetes cluster pretty much, right? And this is what's known as the Azure Arc. So there's some new updates on Azure Arc. First one is that now Azure machine learning services are enabled inside Arc. So you mm -hmm. can do your machine learning on-prem if you want to do it in Arc and with the same experience and API that you could do it in the cloud. Interesting scenario, of course, because you could have a company that has some data sets that have to stay on-prem and others that they are okay with putting in the cloud. And maybe they want to leverage the fact that you can do the same experience of ML with either of them, but keeping the secure one on-prem and doing Azure Arc and doing the ones that are less sensitive in the cloud, right? So this is a scenario that is now enabled through this Azure machine learning being in Arc, right? And, and when you use this Azure ML in Arc, all the computation happens on your Azure Arc cluster, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not moving data. It's not like you're moving data from your cluster to the cloud and then something happens in the cloud and then it shoots it back down, right? All that it does is that behind the scenes, the Arc piece is that all the bits, you know, will be auto-managed. So if Microsoft releases a new feature or something, you don't have to go in and update the software. All that will happen automatically behind the scenes. So all the software in that Azure Arc cluster is managed automatically by Microsoft, right? But it doesn't mean that your data is getting shot in real time right. through the cloud and then coming back down. And it looks like there were some new disk-related storage capabilities you wanted to cover. A lot of people try and, and, you know, definitely platform as a service and, and SaaS offerings are very, very popular, but there we still see people all the time deploying their own IaaS solutions, right? So these type of core IaaS updates, they're still important, I find. And, and they're not just important as well because, you know, people still build VMs and clusters and do things with them, but also 
they are used by Microsoft themselves, right, to improve their own platform services, right? So improvements that Microsoft makes in IaaS that then they expose to clients, usually you see them then bubble up as improvements in also the past services, right? So that's, that's kind of, they're kind of like a sign of things to come. So you can see, for example, the new disks, they now offer uh, an increased availability by having the SSDs on zone-redundant storage. So zone-redundant storage was already available for regular blob storage. So regular uh, disks that would sit in blob storage that could be zone-redundant, but now premium and standard SSDs can be zone-redundant as well. And if you haven't been keeping tabs on this, Microsoft has basically been over the last maybe two years now expanding all their data centers to have multiple availability zones, right? So. Uh, mimicking the AWS design, right? AWS has always had less regions, but at least three AZs on each region. Well, Microsoft instead decided, you know, right off the gate to just produce more regions around the world and just use in the same data center independent racks as the way to do in region HA. But then over the last couple of years, as I mentioned, they've been building more actual physical detached data center space in the regions that they were already in so that they could provide this added level of redundancy, right? So you'll see that there's a lot of now things that are enabled for zone redundant availability. Premium and standard SSDs these are just the latest one pretty much. Then the other thing as well is that premium SSDs used to be that you didn't have the ability to change the performance characteristics of your premium SSD without having to bring it offline. And then, you know, the smaller SSDs would be slower and then the bigger ones would be faster. Now they detached the size of the disk from the performance tier. So you can make it, you know, have more bandwidth to the disk without necessarily making it bigger, right? And you can do this even while the disk is still attached to a running VM, which is a, is a big deal. Of course, if you yeah. need to do this on a 24-7 workload or maybe you're in the middle of a long job and you want to do it without having to stop everything, then you can do it now. So that's that's pretty cool. Kind of makes one wonder what the performance implications may be, though, if, if any, you know, to grow a, a running disk. Yeah, I don't know if maybe, you know, maybe it's a, there's a, a moment where it freezes all the I.O. just to perform the switch or something like that. I haven't tested it yet, but that is the promise that you'd be able to change the performance tiers even while it's running on the VM. Yeah. Right. And it looks like Microsoft is putting some work into expanding, or rather making migration easier with better tooling. Yeah, so there's better tooling, there's better guidance as well. So Microsoft is expanding. Microsoft has this thing called the Cloud Adoption Framework. And if you just go ahead and search for it on the internet, you can search for Microsoft Cloud Adoption Framework. And it's basically a set of documentations, tooling, best practices, diagrams, etc., for people that are looking to adopt the cloud and start to migrate in some workloads. So now they've expanded that adoption framework as well to be able to include guidance about hybrid clouds. Obviously, we just talked about Azure Arc, right? So they mm -hmm. needed to upgrade all of the guidance to mention Azure Arc now as well. And interestingly, they've been adding some guidance as well to multi-cloud. So it actually, you know, mentions how to interop with some of the other uh, big providers out there as well. So that's something that's, you know, interesting as well. Microsoft basically acknowledging some people will be multi-cloud. And if they're going to be multi-cloud, we might as well be one of the clouds in their multi-cloud right. setup, right? Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. And it uh, looks like uh, we have a new uh, Windows server to play with. Yeah, so I, I didn't actually read into what is new in the actual Windows Server 2022, but I did find it interesting that is now available in preview. Also, obviously, for people that are afraid that the actual retail SKUs and, and on-prem stuff is all going away, that's definitely not happening. And also interestingly is that now we have Windows Server 2022 available in preview. And we still haven't heard anything about a new SQL Server 
usually at this point it would be hearing something about it but we haven't yeah. heard anything yet about a sql server will there be a sql server 2021 maybe we'll get an announcement at the other ignite in september or something i haven't heard anything and it's just interesting because right the sql server 2019 was the latest version and we know that microsoft has been trying to hit the two to three year release schedule for their big on-prem flagship software so i would expect that we're gonna hear soon if, if we already are hearing now for about windows server 2022 we might be hearing soon about sql server is it going to be 2021 is it going to be 2022 that's yeah. the mystery right now i'll we'll have to wait and see when i saw this come out i made a mental note and to set aside some time to to uh, go and play with uh, 2022 and, and see what it's all about so uh, looking forward to seeing what they've done all right and let's talk about some data it looks like there is a new synapse pathway feature so the synapse pathway is now in preview and it's actually a pretty neat offering. So it is an actual code and schema migration tool that Microsoft is making available to get people to migrate into Azure Synapse Analytics, right? So Synapse Analytics became GA in November. Lots of interest around the industry. Microsoft made a big announcement event on it. They had the CEO of Starbucks on it. They had the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline on it. And at least from an outsider perspective, the, I've used the service a lot. I'm happy with it in the terms that as a user, I'm surprised how well it actually works. You know, like the integration is there. It's not just... You know, people thought we we're just going to cobble up some screens together and call it a day. And it's just, that's not what they've done, right? It actually works really well. So, you know, to make it easier now, obviously the big pie there that's available for taking is about migrating or trying to entice people to migrate their existing data warehousing workloads into Synapse Analytics, right? And anybody that has worked on these migration projects, I mean, we've done a bunch at Pythian, mm -hmm. We yep. know that a lot of people think, oh, it should be so easy or they should be trivial, right? Especially, you know, exec type. Sometimes they think these are trivial. They're definitely not. Right. So, so Microsoft is coming in with tooling to help, basically, right? So it does automated data warehouse migration, not just helps you with the data migration, but it will actually help you with the DDL for the schema and to actually do automated code translation if it can right i any of these automated translation tools you always know that you're gonna have to do some manual work on it but any sort of automation that will get you going i think is a is a good sign right now for the preview the supported sources are ibm's Natiza. Microsoft's own SQL Server, of course, which should be the lowest hanging fruit, right? Microsoft yeah. can Im imagine how many SQL Server SMP data warehouses are out there that could be a great fit to migrate into Synapse, right? It's like yeah. probably thousands, hundreds of thousands like that around the world, right? So IBM Netiza, Microsoft's own SQL Server, of course. And interestingly, they decided to come out of the gate with Snowflake. So Microsoft shooting there some uh, cannonballs over to the other side but in the promo material that they have there's actually a picture with all the on-prem sources that they put in the promo material and in the promo material it actually shows teradata redshift of course and bigquery as well interestingly actually the one that i'm most curious about the absence is of course oracle Right. It's not in the supported sources right now. And interestingly, it's not in the promo material either, right? So the promo material, the extra ones are Teradata, Redshift, BigQuery that I assume we'll see enabled over the next year or so. But no sign of Oracle. I'm like thinking maybe there was some, uh, I don't know, maybe there was some deal partnership done behind the scenes to say, hey, could be. 
<laughs> don't Could put be. me in that list. I don't know. Either yeah. that or they looked at PLSQL and said, forget it. Yeah, that's too, <laughs> too complicated. <laughs> and it looks like there were also some uh, stream analytics updates you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so stream analytics, the big update for stream analytics is that deployment of stream analytics clusters. So instead of just stream analytics is a, it's a pass service where you can connect your stream analytics service into an event hub or into a storage. And you can do basically SQL queries in real time over windows of constant data flowing in, right? And then you read this data into your stream analytics, and then you can spit it out from stream analytics into another event hub or service bus to basically you know aggregate events and generate a new one or you can spit it out into storage or now you can also put the results out into a synapse table right so uh -huh. so that's stream analytics that's always worked on a kind of like a consumption-based model right so you, every job that you create there's this automagical stream performance units that you can move up or down and it's always been, like I said, it's a past service. So for clients that are more concerned about security, for example, it had the drawback that you couldn't just place it directly into your virtual network. It's a completely isolated service, right? So by turning it, now you have the option of deploying it as a cluster means that A, you can, instead of dealing with these automatic stream units, you can just deploy an actual cluster and just consume as much you can to the resources of the cluster. And B, you can place it inside a virtual network so that it is completely isolated from the rest of the Azure services. Like, you know, you won't be able to hit your endpoint from the internet, right? You'll just be completely isolated in your own VNet. So that's the advantage there of the stream analytics clusters. Okay, that, that makes sense. And what about uh, Synapse's Transact SQL processing for streams? So this is a big new update. It's private preview right now. So Microsoft, on, during the conference, they did some demos, but it's not out yet for everybody to try it out, unfortunately. Otherwise, they would have tried it out already because this is, I think, it's, it's pretty cool. So Microsoft is basically saying, and it's funny because we just talk about stream analytics. So what right. they're doing is putting their own streaming engine for analytics as well inside Synapse. So people might say, well, then now what is this? It's a huge overlap between stream analytics and Synapse. And, and the answer is yes, actually. But, you know, different things, right? So maybe some people will not need a full-blown, they don't want to have a full-blown Synapse. A Synapse is basically a whole enterprise data platform in one service, right? So some mm -hmm. people might not need that. Maybe they just have some events, they want to run some compute on the events and that's it then you always have stream analytics for that. And then second, of course, is to realize that the native T-SQL stream processing is right now in private preview, where stream analytics has existed for years now in Azure, right? right? So stream analytics is a very mature service. It has tons of documentation. It has a bunch of examples you can use. It's integrated with a Power BI, even if you want to do real-time Power BI, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, the Synapse T-SQL native streaming is private preview. It's probably going to take a while to go into public preview, GA, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still some value in stream analytics for sure, and a slightly different use case. But if you are all in on Synapse and you're only bothered by the fact that there is no native streaming solution inside of it, then you know this is this is good news. At least it gives you uh, a roadmap of where we're going, right? And the nice thing about this is that Instead of just taking stream analytics and basically, you know, making a new blade inside the Synapse workspace and saying, hey, here's your streaming. It's basically mm -hmm. stream analytics put into the GUI. Microsoft yeah. is actually generating, they're going to create native DDL for creating a streaming pipelines. So you'll be able to, you know, probably type something like, you know, create a stream consumer, blah, blah, blah. Right. So actually native DDL to deal with it, which means you'll be able to, you know, save it as part of your schema, save it as part of your source control, et cetera, et cetera, right? All the advantages that come with, you know, native instructions for it. And uh, it's going to be done through T-SQL as well. So you don't need to learn yet another dialect of SQL. It's just uh -huh. going to be T-SQL probably with a little bit of, my, my guess is there'll be a little bit of language extensions to deal with 
uh, specifying windows of time or tumbling windows of time and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So pretty interesting, definitely promising because I think it's a great move to make it a first-class citizen of the Synapse experience and just leverage that familiarity with T-SQL, right? That a lot of people have out there. It's just an right. easy an easy language to pick up. There's already hundreds of thousands of devs that know it really well. And you put it into your new analytics flagship product, right? So just basically keep covering all the holes of like, oh, Synapse doesn't do this. Wait, actually, yes, it does. Now it does this as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, the only thing right now is private. So I haven't played with it because, you know, I, I can't get in on it right now. But as soon as it's public preview, I'll definitely playing around with it. Maybe we'll probably do an update on one of our cloud updates once I get some hands-on time on it to to give some impressions. That's a good idea. Another one that I'm I'm pretty excited about was Azure Purview received a number of updates. I thought that was just cool. So Azure Purview is the new version of the Azure Data Catalog, and if you've never used the Azure Data Catalog, but you've used other data catalog solutions from the big vendors, then it's basically a web-based data catalog solution, a new generation of data catalog solution that Microsoft previously had. So Microsoft deployed a data catalog service a while ago, probably years ago at this point, and never... They never really went all in on it. And thus, you know, the adoption kind of like mimics that. Don't see a lot of people using it. And they decided to really rethink the whole thing and re-architect it, create a new web experience, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's called Azure Purview. We talked about it a, a little bit in the cloud update. If you are yeah. a, a regular listener, we, we talked about it in the cloud update as well, right? Uh, and we also talked about how these data catalog solutions, they're, they're a big gap to fill in the cloud and a big market to disrupt. So I'm not surprised, lots of updates because Azure Purview is still in preview. So we are probably gonna be seeing a big curve of uh, you know accelerating updates as we go into GA. My guess is this will probably be GA by the end of this year at some point. But now, for example, they've added the capability to scan and classify data on S3 buckets. So big deal for dealing with multi-cloud clients. Now you can scan not only your Azure resources and your Azure blob storage, your Azure data lake, but you can also scan your S3 buckets. There are new connectors for more on-premises data sources. So on release of the preview, we only had the ability to read SQL servers on-prem. Now we have the ability to read Oracle servers on-prem as well, as well as some ERP solutions from SAP, for example. So if you have SAP, is that what you use as your ERP? Then you can use that as well. Uh, another thing that's been enabled, which was inevitable, was that you can now also scan the Synapse workspace, both your serverless and dedicated uh, SQL pool. So previously, you could only scan the data lake, but now you can actually scan the contents of the pools themselves as well. You can also scan, something interesting is that you can actually scan your own uh, resource groups in your Azure subscription. So there's, you know, if there's some tagging that you've done in your resource groups, you can actually catalog that as data as well inside Purview. So I thought that was pretty neat. So they also added the ability to link your search in your Synapse workspace with your Azure Purview. So when you search something in your Synapse workspace, not only does it just search by the name of the resources or the name of the tables or whatnot, but it can also be linked so that it goes behind the scenes and searches in your Purview catalog and brings you the results out through the Synapse workspace interface. So I thought that was pretty cool as well because then it really integrates both, but it does it in a way that's seamless to the end user, right? They just search for something. And even though the results are powered by the data catalog, it just comes out in the Azure Synapse graphic interface. Yeah, I think that's smart too. And uh, another one we've covered a little bit, Azure Cache for Redis. We actually covered in the cloud update that after many years of not doing a lot of stuff with the Redis service, Microsoft made a partnership with Redis Labs. They introduced a bunch of new enterprise features that Redis Labs has developed into Redis. 
And I'm not gonna go into those. If you wanna hear about those, you can check out the latest cloud update that came out before this episode. But then the other thing that is now generally available is that you can have cross-region uh, distributions of Redis instances, right? So you can make basically a global Redis cache if you want to. That's now generally available as well. So that's something that's pretty cool too. This just basically shows that for, for one reason or the other, probably competitive pressure, Microsoft has decided to reignite, pun intended, their uh, Redis investments, right? Right, right. Okay. As usual, there's a Cosmos DB update to talk about or two or four. That's right. That's right. So there's a few there's a few things enabled in Cosmos DB that I thought were worth the mention that they announced. So they do have the new uh, MongoDB 4.0 interface has been enabled on Cosmos DB. So if you are developing against the MongoDB API, maybe for some reason you don't want to develop on the native Cosmos API because you always want to have the ability to say I have a, a rollback plan and we can deploy back down to MongoDB on-prem if we wanted to or switch from Cosmos DB to, to Mongo in the cloud. Well, now they have that latest API available that supports multi-document transactions, for example, right? So whatever the new API does, it is now available as well in Azure Cosmos DB for Mongo. Then the other thing as well is they have now the ability to do point in time restore. Uh, yeah. This was not a thing before. So yeah. before the recovery of Cosmos DB was based on snapshots. And I think it was like every every four hour snapshots, something I like think that. So, right. I think so. Yeah, so, so it was definitely in the hours range. It was an RPO that was unacceptable for some people. And it also didn't give you the ability to just restore to a point in time, right? Because even if you, let's say you have like, you know, more frequent snapshots, but if you only keep the last one, for example, then you still don't have really an ability to do a point in time restore, right? You have to just go to the last one. So now we do have continuous backup as well as point in time restore. And uh, a couple of more updates on Cosmos DB. They have enabled role-based access control integration with Azure Active Directory. This makes the Cosmos DB security management experience a lot more robust than it was before. So previously, you could create roles in Cosmos DB, but basically it was up to your application to say, oh, this uh, Chris just logged in. In your application code, you have to figure out, you know, oh, Chris logged in, Chris should be a... Uh, only allowed to read from this Cosmos DB container. Mm -hmm. And that was you that had to roll out that type of code to handle that. And now they're implementing full RBAC integrated with uh, Azure Active Directory so that you can literally put, you know, let's say, you know, the Chris user just goes into the Cosmos DB, you know, let's say web uh, reader role. And right. then in your application automatically, you know, when you try to do the request to Cosmos DBs, there will be that extra layer that will say whether you, you know, you're authorized or not based on your identity, right? And then finally, last one, another favorite of mine, and is the Azure Synapse Link is now a GA for use with Cosmos DB. And if you're not familiar with Synapse Link, it is basically a capability that allows you to query in near real time your Cosmos DB data from Synapse, either through the Synapse SQL serverless pool or through the Synapse Spark engine that's embedded in the Synapse workspace. So it's no ETL solution. You just basically have to set up your Cosmos DB configuration for connectivity. And then after that, you run queries in the serverless pool or you can load data frames in your Spark from the Cosmos DB data. And it changes as you work on your Cosmos DB real-time database, right? And Microsoft has a documentation says their target is to keep the lag between the Cosmos DB and what is then the analytical store, which is what is accessed by Spark and, and Synapse by five minutes. So for many near real-time scenarios, this is, a, this is a pretty good target, right? It's five-minute delay on the data, and it allows you to query directly your Cosmos DB from the analytics environment without impacting your Cosmos DB cluster. It consumes no resources from your Cosmos DB cluster. All the resources are consumed on the Synapse side. 
and uh, you know you could say connected to Power BI, for example, and instead of connecting Power BI and then having people run analytical queries and consuming all the resources on your Cosmos DB layer, they can just connect to Synapse, use the Cosmos DB Synapse link and consume the resources on the Synapse side. No need for ETL, no need for data copy, no need for ETL logic to keep the data up to date, like you know, in case of dealing with handling updates or deletes. All that is handled by Microsoft behind the scenes to keep the Synapse link in near real time up to date. So I think it's really, really nice. I've been demoing this a lot. Mm -hmm. I did a session for the DPS conference in November and people were really impressed. It works really well. I have a demo where I'm playing with, I make a Cosmos DB distributed database between Canada and Japan. And I just constantly write on it nonstop. I just run a utility I have where it just constantly writes to Canada and Japan. And then I have a Synapse workspace created in Canada. And, you know, I'm doing changes in Japan. And because of the Cosmos DB multi-writer geo-replication across the world, I'm just constantly running an analytics query on the Synapse side. And you can see it, you know, near real time updating with the data from Japan. And it's just mind blowing that you can do this with, it's literally like two clicks in the portal to enable an extra region and another two clicks to enable the analytical synapse link. And you're basically doing like global near real time analytic queries, right? It's, That's cool. Yeah. When we first started talking about link, I thought, what a great idea, game changer for sure. And the other thing is that this is just Cosmos DB right now. This right. is just a matter of time until they enable the link I think, I, I don't know any actual, you know, hard data that they're going to do this, but I think it's inevitable that they will enable the same concept for Azure SQL databases. And then you basically of kill course. ETL for just regular operational databases to your Synapse link. And you'll be able to do the exact same thing, but just for uh, SQL databases as well. I think it's just a matter of time until that is yeah. also there. And then it will simplify everything so much. If you're like a big adopter of Azure, It'll just be a no-brainer to be like, why would you pick any other analytic solution if you're already in, in, you know, into Azure SQL DB, right? It would just be a no-brainer to go into Synapse. It's a great strategy, but it also the, the tech works. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, agreed. This one I was kind of curious about, but Azure's uh, managed instance for Cassandra has been released. Uh, yeah. Just before you start, just it, why I've been confused is, you know, you can make Cosmos act like Cassandra. Why would they do this? I, I don't know. Th this one lost me. What, what are your thoughts? Cosmos DB, so for people that don't know, Cosmos DB has a compatibility API for Cassandra. So the idea was that you could also develop Cassandra applications and then connect them to your Cosmos DB and Cosmos DB would do the translation. Right. So that would be the and that was the idea. The idea I think here is that some customers maybe are using or wanted to use features of Cassandra that are not supported, right? Mm -hmm. And then they didn't want to give up maybe some specific features that that they were used to doing on Cassandra that you can't do in Cosmos. Or they maybe already had some applications built on top of Cassandra that they couldn't just deal with the things that they couldn't do on Cosmos DB anymore, right? Like usually with all these compatibility layers, there's always like some edge things that you can't do, right? So it's it's not exactly the same. Now this is a full-blown Azure instance of Apache Cassandra. It gives mm -hmm. you basically two options, right? You can either, if you're okay with that compatibility level that you get with Cosmos DB's Cassandra API, then that's the easiest thing to do, right? Because you just go straight up into Cosmos DB. But if you do want to have an actual real Apache Cassandra cluster in Azure, then now you have the offer of the Azure managed instance. So it's a pass offering. You don't have to manage the actual Cassandra bits. You don't have to manage the hardware. It's all managed for you. And it has a bunch of built-in capabilities, right? Like you can scale the cluster up or down. So it's not a, it's not like, oh, I might as well just build my own Cassandra cluster 
in the cloud, right? Like, no, you get you get the the manageability of don't have to access the operating system, keep it patched, keep it up to date. You can scale up or down the nodes. You can have the backup set up if you wanted to. Uh, you could even replicate from the Cassandra to also another Cosmos DB, for example, using the Cassandra really? API. So yeah, I think this is mostly the idea to do that. It's a couple of use cases for that. Because somebody might say, like, well, what's the point of of doing all that? Right. Right. I don't know how easy or hard it might be right now to do global replication with this managed instance of Cassandra. So maybe that's a way to just be able to do the global replication because Cosmos already had it for a long time. And second, it kind of enables what we just talked about before, the Synapse link, right? So the Synapse link now only works with Cosmos DB. It doesn't work with this new managed instance for Apache Cassandra, right? So you could use it as kind of like basically like a relay into Synapse. So that's another use case I can see. Good point. Uh, You'll still have to pay for it. So I wonder how much it will get adopted that people will want to have an Apache Cassandra cluster. And on top of that, also pay for the Cosmos DB service to do that but the ability is there if you wanted to do it i think it's also a lot of like we were just talking about before competitive pressure to have a native cassandra service because amazon has one as well right Good point. It looks like there were a, um, a handful of exciting AI updates as well. Why don't we talk about semantic search capabilities? Yeah, so semantic search is now it's an improved uh, capability of the Azure Cognitive Search. So Cognitive Search has already been around. It's a service built into the Cognitive Services that allows you to categorize your text, your images, right? You can even do search on audio files, et cetera, et cetera. The semantic search, it just brings those semantic search capabilities, right? Where you don't have to literally specify the terms that you're looking for, but it can try to understand intent in the way that you're writing, uh, you know, use synonyms or use uh, different, if you write something like as a question and stuff like that to basically figure out the, the exact content that you're looking for. So this is a new capability in the cognitive search to try to make it more in line to what you expect nowadays from search engines, right? We do semantic search on, like when you type on Google all the time, it does this, right? Where you can type exact questions and it gives you like answers, even though you might not be using the terms that are contained in the answer, right? And cognitive search is for you to be able to do that in your own data and in your own applications, right? It's it's a service to be used to consume to make other solutions, right? So that's the neat thing about it. The other AI update is this form recognizer. It's a, it's a very interesting service, right? Because it it's about digital transformation, right? It's about the ability of taking, you know, accepting that forms are a thing and that people fill up forms all the time. And how do we make it more efficient, right? So form recognizer is a service that basically takes images of filled up forms and spits out a JSON saying, these are the fields that we see yeah. in the form, and these are the contents. And now they're adding a couple of new capabilities. First is that they're adding a bunch of new languages to it. I think they added like 60-something languages. It was a lot. They had like the big big nine, which is English, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Chinese, Japanese. I forget the other one. And now it's being expanded with yeah an additional 64 languages. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting that makes a lot of sense is that they are taking this, adding the capability in form recognizer to basically have like pre-built templates of popular type of docs. So let's say, for example, they'll have something that says, are you scanning a US driver's license or a passport or stuff like that? And it'll already have like a standard set of fields that it knows that have to come on that particular it's not a form really but it's the same idea right it's a thing that you look at that has a pair of keys and values right right generic elements yeah yeah let's talk about the mixed reality platform for microsoft mesh yeah so this was the kind of like a really funky flashy unveiling from microsoft that they did during the event and microsoft mesh is basically a new platform that microsoft is building 
for mixed uh, reality experiences. And the idea is that it's not just for Microsoft, it's a platform that can be used to build these type of experiences in other hardware, right? So obviously the first thing that we think about is like, oh, HoloLens, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like a new platform to build stuff on HoloLens, but it's not just for HoloLens. The idea is that this is basically is an SDK that you can adopt kind of like, you know, if you're a game developer, you can use Unity, you can use the Unreal Engine, right? You can use all these different frameworks that are built for developing games. So this is the same idea. It's like, it's a framework and a platform for building mixed reality experiences. And the idea is that developers or the people that create hardware as well, VR hardware, could adopt it and use it to create mixed reality experiences, right? So the idea here, again, is, is I think is to try to tap into a market that's kind of wide open, right? Like in the beginning, everybody would develop their own game engines, right? Like back in mm -hmm. the 90s. Yeah. Nowadays, everybody just uses one of these commercial game engines. And then, you know, immediately your time to market gets way smaller because you don't have to be reinventing the same thing over and over, right? So it's kind of like the same thing, right? Microsoft is looking at the market of mixed reality. It's still very small. It's very fragmented. There is no standards. There is uh, not like a winner in this area, like a big, you know, platform winner. So why not come out with their mixed reality platform to build these type of solutions going forward? Yeah, totally. I, I'm excited and scared about uh, augmented reality, but watching it evolve. I think this is one of those things where the the messaging, a lot of it, to just try to generate buzz, is geared towards the just the mainstream consumer. But the real use case is more in like industrial type of scenarios, right? Like yeah. what they they talk about. I remember they did a demo of the Hololens. I think maybe it was in WPC last year. You probably remember where they I've did I've seen the, it many. It's been in every the, year for five. The, <laughs> <laughs> but they had one one year specifically where they did the, the Rolls-Royce engine, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like the training for dealing with a Rolls-Royce engine, like, you know, the cost, the space of actually having the physical engine there, presence, right? Versus the cost of space if you're just doing something that you'd be okay with just looking at the virtual representation of the engine, right? This, you can probably translate that into so many other things, right? Especially like manufacturing and stuff like that, large scale, especially, right? You can make it smaller to look at it in detail, zoom into it, go inside the engine, right? Things that you can't really do easily with uh, the physical representation. So I think there's a lot of promise in that. I think we see a lot of promotion that shows like people, you know, oh, you're like under the ocean now, or yeah. like this is how it feels to fly and all these kinds yeah. of things. But uh, at the end of the day, I think that the real use case is in like the industrial training, education, troubleshooting kind of scenarios. Agreed. All right. And looking at the last one we had on our list today, let's talk about Microsoft PowerFX. So PowerFX, it's a new open source, low code programming language that Microsoft is introduced during this event. And if you're not familiar with the whole, you know, power thing, Microsoft started with Power BI and then basically expanded this idea into the Power Platform family, right? So we have Power mm -hmm. BI and there's also Power Apps. And the idea of Power Apps is that you, you know, for a really easy form style apps, you can develop something with just, you know, drag and dropping and filling up like, hey, this is where your source is. Okay, this is my, my data source, generate me a form. There's also Power Automate, which is basically like workflows, but all GUI based to create things and integrations, right? Like if I, if somebody puts a document in this SharePoint folder, send me an email kind of thing, and you can do that all with Power Automate. So PowerFX is now, a new piece of, of this puzzle that Microsoft is building. And the idea, of course, is that it's going to interact with this Power Apps platform, right? And it's already used inside Microsoft for the actual Power Apps tooling that they have. And now, like I said, they are making it available to the front end as well for the end users to, to use it, right? And, and, and it's the idea being that it's very similar to Excel, 
because everybody knows Excel and Excel is the number one tool that people use to do rogue IT around the world. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and access. Right? Yeah, Excel and access. I mean, it's crazy what people do with Excel. Oh, yeah. Especially Excel. I mean, access too, but just Excel is crazy. I saw the other day, actually, a small, small side note. I saw the other day this gentleman, I think it was from Japan, that makes Excel artwork. And it's just mind-blowing. So he basically takes a whole Excel spreadsheet and he changes the colors of each cell one oh, yeah, by yeah. one to yeah, generate yeah. kind of like a, a tile, right? And yeah. then when you zoom out and you see the whole spreadsheet, is like it's like this beautiful fall or landscape, right? It's crazy. It's like, oh my God, people just, yeah, even some stuff that is like, it almost looks like it's just like grayscale drawing, mm-hmm. but it's all just based on like, you know, characters and the and the black background of like console style right yeah but anyway all that to say is that the power effects is built with the idea of making it very similar to excel formulas and so that people that use these power apps as well if they need a little bit of extra control of parameterization and stuff like that to introduce into their applications then they have a language that they can use to express it without having to, you know, be full-blown developers, right? You know, how easy will it be really to just translate what you think into this expression language? I really don't know. I haven't played around with it, but I mean, that is the goal that Microsoft has. So it's an interesting avenue. I mean, we'll we'll see who adopts it and, and what they use it for. I think it's a I think it's a good thing to to exist and uh, There's a big so- trend of this, right? Of the whole yeah low code or no code and you know how the world has basically a shortage of coders and a lot of people don't really need like full programming skills to be able to be productive with what they're trying to achieve right so it's definitely not going away and i have no problem with it i mean if it and software engineering in general has a lot of you know snobbiness and you know like people think it's like this elite club that you shouldn't be developing stuff if you like are not mm-hmm. like a full-blown coder or anything, which is just mm-hmm. obviously ridiculous. If somebody can solve a business problem with a no-code or low-code solution and boom, you're ready to go, well, that's great, right? This is literally, you set out to solve something, you did it, that's all that is necessary, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Enablement and being able to do, focus on the real problems, right? Not the problem being, oh, I have to like, you know, set up my whole development environment. I don't know anything about compilers, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously there's some things that will always be done that way anyway. You know, nobody's going to do a an ERP in a no-code system or develop, you know, the latest web platform on that. But there's so many small business problems that could be solved with just a little bit of, you know, automated forming and some data validations and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, we'll see what the market does with that. Well, folks, that's all the time we had today. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. And you can do that by telling a friend or writing a short, honest review, or maybe even sharing our posts on social media. We also love feedback, and you can send feedback and ideas our way at datascapepodcasts at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.